I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with a two-part special about the Magic City, some of the most remarkable architecture in America, if not the world. It's amazing. I'm talking about the Magic City, Tulsa, Oklahoma. No, oh, really? <laughs> In the 1920s, Tulsa, Oklahoma was called the Magic City because of the things that were happening as a result of the oil boom. The Cushing Field was discovered at the beginning of the 1900s, which saw the population explode from just over 7,000 in 1907 to over 72,000 in 1920. Names like Wade Phillips, J. Paul Getty, Henry Sinclair, John D. Rockefeller came to Tulsa and built a world-class city around the oil industry, and in the process creating world-renowned companies like Texaco and Philip 66. With the influx of money came high society, culture, and the arts, alongside extraordinary architecture and design. Interesting, it wasn't just rich white money either. Black Wall Street became a highly successful self-contained black community within a city called Greenwood on the outskirts of downtown Tulsa. This is a success story with a horrific ending the Greenwood Massacre, to understand how this happened, one needs to fully understand that Black Wall Street, as it was called, wasn't isolated. It was a community crafted out of necessity and developed into a superior, highly functioning community of Black-owned, Black-run businesses by design. O.W. Gurley, a wealthy man of color, he created a center of commerce built by and for the Black community. He wasn't the only one who saw this idea of a an exclusively black utopian community. And that's what they built. They created a, a center of commerce built by and for the black community. And it's a success story, again, with a horrific ending. After years of success and years of publicly well-documented jealousy, the result was the Black Wall Street Massacre, which saw the entire community destroyed by a white mob. 36 Greenwood residents lost their lives. 800 were injured, 6,000 were held unlawfully in internment camps, and the entire community was burned to the ground. If interested in the whole story, which is an incredible, albeit tragic story, will be linked in the, uh, in the show notes here. And you can find influences of Black Wall Street imbued within the city itself through design and architecture. Speaking of architecture... This amazing art deco and mid-century modern, the Gothic cathedrals and the city plan straight out of midtown Manhattan. This is part of the story of Tulsa, an amazing story, and one I wanted to share with you from the perspective of design, architecture, and city planning. To understand the origin and evolution of Tulsa, I spoke with two community experts, Grant Baumgartner uh, with an organization called Tulsa Remote and architect Ted Reeds both of whom know the city and her history intimately. Grant Baumgartner is community manager with Tulsa Remote. If not familiar, Tulsa Remote is a community development program designed to bring talented people to Tulsa, Oklahoma. People who work remotely that can bring a fresh perspective to the city. This two-year-old initiative will be further explained by Grant. This is a story about regrowing a modern city. City planning with people at the center of moving forward smartly into the future. I love studying American cities. I'm a huge fan of cities like Austin, Memphis, Tennessee, and yes, Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can learn a lot about cities by how they respect their past and nurture their future.
Some of the most successful cities are those that result that respect their past and keep an eye on ever moving forward. And Tulsa is one of those. You have no doubt heard about Tulsa recently, uh, rather in 2020, for all the wrong reasons. The Trail of Tears, the destruction of Black Wall Street, uh, the massacre, and um, our former president uh, holding a rally. This city has a mixed past, and you're going to hear about much of it. You're also going to hear about a city that was built on some of the country's best architecture. You heard me right. Some of America's best Art Deco architecture is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. One of these structures is the Boston Avenue Methodist Church, designed by master architect and prodigy Bruce Goff. Goff has significant Southern California ties as well. He designed the Al Struckus House. If not familiar, search for it. It, it. This house is extremely interesting, to say the least. Goff also designed the Japanese art pav- pavilion at LACMA. A legendary structure that, for me, is in the collection of significant Los Angeles architecture. Back to Tulsa, I visited the city and Grant gave me a walking tour, and we had a chance to reconnect and talk. By the way, following my conversation with Grant, you're going to hear from Ted Reeds. Ted Reeds is an architect and adjunct professor of architecture at the Christopher C. Gibbs School of Architecture at the University of Oklahoma. Ted is president of his eponymous firm and one of those amazing storytellers you are instantly happy with whom you found yourself connected. I have often shared my thoughts on this, that architecture is a language. I didn't create that. You've heard that before. But design is the storytelling of that architecture. Ted is the rare architect that has mastered the storytelling within architecture, which is probably why he was so much fun for me to speak with. Ted and I spoke by phone and discussed some of the amazing structures in and around Tulsa. In this episode, you're going to hear about the vault within the 320 building, the vault restaurant and bar, the gathering place, the cathedral district, uh, Black Wall Street, Guthrie Green, Union Depot, the Mother Road, Tulsa's five districts, the Sinclair building addition. There's a lot here. Wade Phillips, father of modern Tulsa, the Phil Tower, Phil Cade, there's a lot to talk about. In, enjoy this story about Tulsa, Oklahoma, the magic city. I stand by it. By the way, are you subscribing to the podcast? If not, please do, so you get every episode automatically when they're published. You can find Convo by Design everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. And now you can find us on designnetwork.org, a destination dedicated to podcasts, all things design and architecture. So please check it out. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zenger, a progressive brand that was built on a promise to provide designers, architects, and homeowners with the right materials to do their very best work. That promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But it's more than that. Walker Zanger believes strongly in serving the trade with a trade program that makes the specifying process simple with the support you need. They've been staunch supporters of the trade since 1952. In 2020, I launched a series in partnership with Walker Zenger called The Showroom. This intimate interview series showcases some of the very best creatives in the business today. Please join us live or catch every episode recorded so you can enjoy it on your schedule. Walker Zenger is on the cutting edge of design featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. So check out any of their showrooms across the country or shop online. WalkerZenger.com. I am with Tulsa Remote. Tulsa Remote 
is a two-year-old uh, initiative uh, put on by a local Tulsa uh, foundation uh, called the George Kaiser Family Foundation, which does lots of work throughout the city. Um, its primary focus on early childhood development. Uh, basically, its, its, its stated goal is ending uh, the cycles of intergenerational poverty. So most of the work of the foundation goes towards early childhood development, education, housing, criminal justice reform, things like that. Tulsa Remote was started two years ago to kind of complement that work. We're trying to provide opportunity for kids at a young age, but we also want to provide opportunity for those, those young Tulsans when they grow up um, so that they don't leave. Traditionally, Tulsa has like many mid-sized cities, I think, suffered from a, a brain drain where a lot of our best and most talented individuals uh, felt that their best opportunity was Dallas or Kansas City or Chicago or, or any of the kind of major metropoles of America. Um, and that's something that the program was put in place um, to try and, uh, and reverse. The reason we, we went with the remote work aspect is that many different cities that are similar in size to Tulsa, they spend all their time with their chambers of commerce going out and recruiting these companies, trying to get people to move there, to bring jobs to their city. And we still throw our hat in those rings all the time. Um, the difference is what we realized was, well, wait a minute. You know, we always get told by these companies, well, the talent's elsewhere, the talent's elsewhere. Well, how do we get out of this catch-22 where the talent's always somewhere else? Um, and we, we realized that remote work might be the thing to focus on. Now, that now I think sounds even more obvious in the, in the age of the pandemic. This was obviously before, you know, everyone was working remotely. Um, but it was a way for us to attract people who already had employers um, to, to come to Tulsa, to give Tulsa a try, to hopefully uh, start to see what we saw in Tulsa, to stick around. Uh, and thereby diversify the economy and, and also provide uh, just kind of some new life into the city, all while providing that individual with a lower cost of living and incentive to move here. Uh, so really a win-win. And that's why we started Tulsa Remote. I think the success we've had has been just massive interest, more than we ever expected. That really shows that uh, there's an appetite for this and it, it really has the capacity to, to shape the city. Love that. Absolutely fell in love with this city. And, and I think what's what's so interesting about Tulsa is prior to prior to the Donald Trump rally at the mm -hmm. BOK Center, mm -hmm. nobody was was talking about Tulsa. And then all of a sudden you're thrust into the limelight. And that's I, I learned so much about the city, but it, it's interesting. A lot of it was also misinformation, and I'll get to that in a in a little bit. But sure. tell me about you know you were kind enough to give me a tour of of especially that downtown area between downtown mm -hmm. and the arts district and the cathedral district. Tell me about how Tulsa started because I think it's really interesting the origins of the city, sort of up to up to where we are now. And I also want to talk about that extraordinary architecture the art deco it, the city's just dripping in art deco like like it's like a jewelry store i mean it's a it's amazing <laughs> no um, i agree th this architecture and you're walking around it so how did it start and then 
tell me about sort of the that architectural that that movement that art deco movement that sort of moved in and and why because i think that's so that's so fascinating absolutely so kind of the quick and easy history of, of tulsa is uh oklahoma um was was one of the very last continental states we were indian territory as it was called for for quite some time um and eastern oklahoma is really where uh the infamous trail of tears uh, ended so Tulsa's first quote-unquote founding uh, was by the Muscogee Creek Indians at the end of that trail, um, which is actually who named the city of Tulsa, uh, being a variation on a, on a creek word, uh, basically meaning a city on the river, the Arkansas River. Uh, the city itself was incorporated in 1899, but at that time, I mean, it was the definition uh, of a podunk town. Um, if, you, if you had been betting at the time on which Oklahoma cities would grow to prominence, which might be the capital, which might be, you know, you would never have bet on Tulsa. When the first railroad came through, there were 200 people in the entire city. Um, and it really did change overnight uh, through a really fortunate kind of confluence of events. Basically, in the early teens, in the aftermath of uh, uh, of kind of the Industrial Revolution, really reaching the West in the, in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, there was so much need and a recognition of the importance of oil and gas. And all of that coincides with basically by accident, uh, folks in and around Tulsa discovering that they were sitting adjacent to uh, what was at the time and still to this day is the largest oil reserve um, kind of ever found a massive oil reserve called the Glen pools. Um, was discovered, uh, and some wildcat wells were, were popped up. And basically overnight, I mean, in several years, the city grew many times over. In a decade, it grew a hundredfold. Uh, so the city grew massively uh, well before statehood. Oklahoma wasn't a state until 1908. And so the city popped up overnight. And what was interesting about it is it was obviously lots of Native Oklahomans, Native Americans, but also lots of folks from the coast who saw an immense opportunity, a 20th century gold rush uh, to come and stake their name in, uh, in Tulsa. And uh, those people brought with them their art, their culture, their urban design uh, and their architectural preferences. I mean, so in the early days of Tulsa, I mean, it was a who's who of billionaires and, and uh, titans of industry. The Rockefellers were here. Uh, you know, Standard Oil had a massive office here. Many of the major oil and gas firms that we recognize today from Sunoco to Sinclair to Phillips 66 uh, were all founded uh, in Tulsa during that boom. And the wealth that was generated built a city that was very unique at the time. Uh, certainly west of the Mississippi, it was one of the most luxurious, one of the uh, most architecturally interesting. It had buildings way too tall for any <laughs> for any city in Oklahoma. Uh, and we, you know, as my as my father likes to say, uh, you get lucky uh, if you if you happen to boom during a good or bad kind of architectural fad, you can get lucky or unlucky. <laughs> right. we, were lucky to, we were lucky to boom at a time when Art Deco, American Gothic, these were things that were in vogue. And so we just built it and, and Tulsa built it straight through the depression. I mean, Many of our best buildings were built at the height of the Great Depression, which 
which never really affected the city of Tulsa. One of the stories you were telling me, and I, and I think it's important because I want to I want to dig a little deeper on this, but oil barons basically mm-hmm. basically built Tulsa. Yeah, and it's one of the things that kind of makes Tulsa a little unique from the rest of Oklahoma. There certainly is a ton of Oklahoma that you can see in Tulsa. You know, I mean, the landscape, the people, it makes its mark on the city. But there also are many unique aspects to Tulsa, primarily being that most of Oklahoma was founded or originally settled by by cattlemen, by ranchers, um, by that type of individual, whereas Tulsa was was founded by early 20th century oilmen uh, and tycoons, essentially, which really puts a, a very different flavor on the city, not just visually and through its design, but also kind of culturally. It instilled this, which to this day still exists, this really large sense of philanthropy, of giving back. Tulsa is the most philanthropic city in America per capita, uh, and that was really started by example, in the early days, if you're a person of means in Tulsa today, um, there's a great deal of social pressure, and I think it's a good thing, that you ought to give back, that you ought to participate in many of the public-private partnerships or you know, charitable donations that are available in Tulsa. Uh, and that expectation is not something that I've actually seen in as many other cities both mid-sized and large in the United States. Um, And that was kind of from the roots of those oil barons who came to Tulsa and basically built a city from scratch. Tulsa doesn't have much of a history 150 years ago, whereas, you know, a lot of other kind of major cities, you can go back quite a ways. You know, Tulsa's oldest building is this old wooden shack uh, from the late 1880s. I mean, so we really don't have a long architectural history in the region. Uh, so they were really able to kind of make their mark. So, and because of that, you, and I bring it up because as the city grows, not only was it developed, and, and I want to get to the to some of the architecture in the city and what I mean, but there's also plenty of opportunity even now for for infill projects because oh my it was so yeah. spread out and you know the distance between so let's let's talk about this actually because i think two things that i i don't know why these two things stuck out in my head but these two things the first one is is pretty obvious um the mother road route 66 started in tulsa correct mm-hmm. yes yes and, and so you've got you've got roads and then you've also got the fact that there's an, a whole network of underground tunnels built between the downtown buildings. And it was, it was interesting. I'm going to let you explain the why, because I think it's just fascinating. But transportation was obviously a, a, it was a thought back when they're first building the city. It wasn't just let's build up and big as fast as we can. There was really a lot of thought into city and urban planning. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in the early days, of Tulsa Route 66 would eventually cut through. But in, in the early days, I mean, uh, not only was there the tunnel system uh, throughout all the buildings downtown to prevent uh, kidnapping of the, <laughs> the many wealthy individuals and their physical money, which at the time all you know dollars and cents were transported literally between the buildings, between the banks. Um, so all of that was protected by a series of tunnels, which today are no longer used for that purpose, but are certainly a handy and, and cool part of the of the downtown kind of landscape. Uh, but even in the early days, there was a trolley car system. There was a rail car system that ran through downtown. It is now defunct. 
but the city was was planned much more like a Philadelphia, a Boston of its day um, than you would expect from most kind of prairie towns. You know, if you had gone to Lincoln, Nebraska at the same time that Tulsa is booming, it, it, it would not have the same the same urban feel. So city planning was taken very seriously. I mean, the city was was able to kind of plan in a way that, that many East Coast cities aren't simply because of its its youth uh, and relative newness. I mean, the entire city is laid out on a grid um, that is incredibly regimented. It makes it very easy to get around the city. Um, the unfortunate thing, kind of as the city grew and in the 70s and 80s in the time of urban renewal, as downtown bottomed out, the rail car, the trolley car were all taken out. Uh, and public transit kind of for for a while was was left by the wayside. We're starting to really reinvest in it, but uh, we're certainly only at the beginning stages now. So the architecture itself, I mean, and, and you talk about the wealth. And so because of that, I want to start with two things. Um, and forgive me, because I'm going to have to ask you some of the buildings that we went into for the for the names but i think you'll recognize them when i bring them up sure the the first is and it was just so fun um the not the vault restaurant and bar i want to get to that second but the first is the actual vault what building was that oh the the bank vault yes that was today it's called the 320 building which is its address but it was originally built as the first national bank of tulsa that that vault that vault door is probably one of the biggest I've ever seen. It's a massive, massive bank vault door, and it's been there since they built the building. They actually built a tunnel system to bring that vault into uh, the building. Still functions today. You know, you can have your safety deposit box back there if you really don't want anyone to get to it. <laughs> um, it's yeah, it's really cool, and that building still has uh, obviously uh, two different uh, bank branches in it. That building's fascinating because that's where Standard Oil uh, was for a long time in their presence in Tulsa, was in the first National Bank building. There, There's some Rockefeller hands, actually, and even parts of the construction of that building. And when you talk about the materials that went into this, I mean, you're, you're talking about the just between the marble and the wood alone, I'm trying to, to imagine, A, how much of it was purchased, and B, how they got it to that location and just the journey that the materials themselves had to go through to get there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so a lot of the marble in the 320 building came out of a quarry in Missouri, actually, uh, that has since been closed down for decades and decades and only recently reopened. Um, but it's, it's materials that today, if you could get them, you couldn't afford them. You know what I mean? I mean, it's things that, you couldn't build these buildings today. They were built at a time, even in their day, they were exceptionally expensive and only made possible by the exorbitant wealth of the various boom decades that Tulsa had experienced, allowing them to build uh, really gorgeous buildings at, at top dollar, um, often to the detriment of whoever ended up developing them. There's a long history of people building opulent buildings in Tulsa and then having to sell them a few years later. Right. But, uh, but it, no, they're absolutely gorgeous. I mean, from the teak walls to the marble floors to the beautiful frescoes that are kind of painted on the ceiling, it, it, no expense was spared in, in the construction of these buildings. And that's what's so beautiful about them is that it's, it's a level of craftsmanship 
and cost that you just couldn't meet today uh, or would be very, very difficult and certainly isn't uh, the way that most developers are looking today. And so it's it's something that even if I think you were willing to pay for it, I'm not so sure you could find the people expert enough to, to lay that marble the same way or to chisel all of the different uh, intricacies into the stone or into the elevator doors. I mean, it's it's really gorgeous. Yeah, it is. Between between the woodworking and the stone carving and the metalwork, um, and just the the design that that falls under that that large Art Deco banner, um, and I, I took I took a ton of pictures. And what I'm going to do is mm-hmm. I'm going to start posting these. So if you're listening and you want to go see them, you can find them on uh, on the Convo by Design Instagram, Convo by Design with an X. And so I'll I'll start posting them there. Um, the next one I wanted to ask you about because here's one thing that I've I've always really enjoyed and appreciated is when a city is so thoughtful about their future that they have one foot, you know, in the future and moving forward, but they keep one firmly planted in the past. And that really is the case with, with Tulsa. And so the, the next project that I wanted to talk about was the vault restaurant and bar, which mm-hmm. was, was a mid century modern uh, drive through bank, right? Yes. One of the very first in the nation, actually. Really? Uh, in, its, in its day, one of the first drive through banks in the nation, a really fascinating structure uh, that, like much of Tulsa, um, sat vacant for certain parts of the 80s and 90s and has been repurposed in the past decade uh, by a local restaurateur. Uh, she has turned it into just a really gorgeous restaurant. And what she did that's so cool is with the interior of the restaurant and the decor of the restaurant, it's, it's in the style of you know, what would have been in a really fancy bank lobby, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, you know, at the time when this would have been constructed. It's, it's a really cool, cool building. What's so fascinating about it, too, is that they didn't tear down anything. The tubes are still there. The drive through is still there. The, the, the ceiling is, you can see all of the, that, that gorgeous mid-century modern, the big glass. The, it's just, it's, it's low and sleek, but it's also too, it's just, you have to see it. And again, I'll post the images. But what's interesting is it sat vacant, but they didn't tear it down. No, no. And, and Tulsa has made some mistakes, uh, like I think many cities made in terms of different forms of architecture or style becoming passe and people in the heat of the moment thinking, ah, well, we don't need it anymore. Tulsa has been lucky though, to have a concerted effort to try to conserve a lot of its, of its beautiful history uh, and architecture and design. Um, I think a great example of that, I don't know if you got a chance to do this, Josh, was to go into the library. Uh, but the library is another uh, mid-century modern building that had kind of fallen into disrepair um, it hadn't been taken care of particularly well. And people about six years ago were saying, well, let's tear it down. We'll build a better one. And fortunately, there was a concerted effort to not tear down the library, to remodel it a bit, to revamp it, to kind of bring it back to its former glory with a twist looking towards the future. Um, and I think they just hit a home run with it. It is a gorgeous building. It still maintains all of kind of its its glorious features from its original design, but it also has some some modern improvements. And it's a really beautiful public space that was actually voted when it was redone uh, the best one of the best designed public spaces in, in America. It is absolutely gorgeous. And I was gonna I was gonna actually hold this uh, for the end, but you mentioned <laughs> stunning 
public spaces. I want to deviate from the past for a minute and talk about the future. And that is the, um, the gathering place. Ah, uh, yes. The gathering place is really, um, as far as design goes, I would say in the past five years, that's the creme de la creme uh, of what Tulsa has been doing on, on the design front has really been, uh, not just urban design, but also this kind of, uh, green space design, uh, throughout the city, but the gathering place is the pinnacle of it. It's a, if if the, if your listeners haven't heard of it, it is a massive uh, public private partnership. It was actually the largest private gift to a city in the history of America. It's a 70 acre park that was constructed privately and then donated uh, to the city of Tulsa with a hundred million dollar endowment to cover costs um, in perpetuity. Uh, so it will always remain free. But if you attend and I don't know if you had this experience, Josh. Uh, many people tell me, and I agree, it feels more like a free amusement park yeah. than it's like a public park. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and no, no, uh, no cost was spared in terms of the design. Uh, the park was designed by Michael Van Valkenburg, who's a landscape architect who's currently doing work on um, President Obama's presidential library. He also did work on the revamp of Millennium Park that happened in Chicago uh, not too long ago really excellent work that he and his team did to come in and craft an experience where everything down to the stones lining the pathways was meticulously thought over. Uh, and the coolest thing for me about the gathering place as a total Oklahoma nut is that everything in it is an homage to the natural surroundings. It's crafted, but it's natural. All of the stone is natural Oklahoma limestone and sandstone and shale. And they used all sorts of different woods from Oklahoma and all the grasses that kind of line the walkways are native grasses. When you experience the gathering place, you're experiencing all these different parts of Oklahoma, which are totally natural, but they're brought together in a way that that emphasizes them more than I think you could get just walking through the prairie. You know, it's really a a cool experience for, for whatever you're interested in. You mentioned this already, but I think it bears repeating is that it was, it was built into basically a, a, a residential neighborhood, but it was built as a gift for the city. Absolutely. It was basically constructed to complement uh, the river park system. All of Tulsa's banks of the Arkansas river is public land. But what we wanted to create at the foundation was something that's true to the name gathering place. We wanted a place for all Tulsans from all backgrounds, from any side of town to come and to gather. And the decision was made to build it basically in, in one of the nicest parts of town. Uh, and the reason to do that was not to just make it easy for the folks who live there to get there. It was to put something of value in a place that has always been valuable that may have felt exclusionary to, to other parts of Tulsa, may have been a place where they never felt welcomed or that they had a stake in that community. We wanted to put something so world-class that every kid in Tulsa could come to it, recognize that as a Tulsa, this park belonged to them, and that this park wasn't just, you know, some crappy little park with some weeds growing in a big grass field. This was a, this <laughs> right. a world-class, valuable asset that they had a stake in, that they could go to and feel like they were part of a world-class city. And while there, they could 
engage with other Tulsans and gather and build empathy and fun memories and, and connectivity across the city. And the, the park has been a huge success. In our first year, we expected a million visitors. We had over three million visitors. I mean, people just love the gathering place. Absolutely. And to see it is is to really understand why. And I think that that inclusionary feeling, and I also want to get back to downtown. So as, as you're going back to downtown, you, you have the Cathedral District. Mm-hmm. And you, you have some of the most remarkable architecture. Tell, tell me about this cathedral and the origins of it and sort of how it fits into the, the fabric of Tulsa. Absolutely. The Cathedral District is kind of one of the five districts downtown. Um, it is true to its name, basically where there are a variety of churches uh, of various denominations, each one of them beautiful. The kind of a centerpiece of the Cathedral District is the Boston Avenue Methodist Church, a gorgeous art deco structure built by Bruce Goff, who's kind of one of Tulsa architecture's greatest sons. Uh, he was the head of the architecture program at the University of Oklahoma for quite some time. He was once called by Frank Lloyd Wright as the only American architect with any real talent. Uh, <laughs> which is a little harsh, but I think Bruce Goff certainly lives up to it. He's a masterful architect who's been designing. There are buildings in Tulsa that he designed when he was 14 years old that, that are that are built. But the Boston Avenue Methodist Church is truly his masterpiece. It is you know, I almost recommend for any any of your listeners to Google it while I talk about it because it's hard to explain it. It doesn't look like any church that that you're picturing. It's a massive spire in the middle, uh, incredibly ornate, but not necessarily in the style of a lot of Art Deco, where it's you know, I don't know, very like Rococo and just kind of you know floral. Like it is sharp and angular, uh, and it rises up to the sky with thousands throughout the building of little open hands pointing up to send prayers to the heavens and even though it has some of the trappings of a typical church like stained glass uh goth put a huge twist on it i mean the stained glass is art deco stained glass you know it's if you enter in there and see the light coming through it hits you in a different way than than your typical uh stained glass it's a a very unique building there just aren't many uh art deco churches and certainly none of the of the scale uh, of boston avenue uh, methodist church yeah and while not the same architecturally by any stretch you know when i when i saw it in person it reminded me of la sagrada familia in in barcelona Mm -hmm. it just it reminded me of that um everything about the building and the style was 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 tr- was transferred to the surrounding grounds as well. You even have those mm-hmm. those those amazing Art Deco light fixtures in the parking lot. You know, it just yeah. it just yeah. everything everything was so thoughtful and just it's so architecturally artful in yeah, its design. Well, what, what I love about it, and this can actually even connect it to the Gathering Place somewhat, is because the Gathering Place is is helping to get us back to these roots. And Tulsa, really, with Tulsa Mountain programs like that, is getting back to its roots. We, we forget as Tulsans that things like the Boston Avenue Methodist Church are evidence that there was a time when Tulsa was cutting edge, when Tulsa was doing things that were big and bold and bizarre, you know, building a massive, expensive, art deco, towered church <laughs> is not something that many mid-American cities 
uh, were, were up for at any point in their history. Building the tallest building west of the Mississippi at its time uh, was something that, that many cities would not have dared to do. Tulsa was, uh, at many points in its history, but not for quite some time, uh, pushing the envelope in design, in economics, in, in, a variety, in, in urban planning. Um, and we need to go back to those roots and recognize that that's still in our blood and in our character um, as Oklahomans and as Tulsans. And we're starting to do that, to, to realize that we can give ourselves permission to think big. We're fortunate to have resources in this part of the country that, that many places don't have. And let's put those to use in a way that's innovative and interesting and forward thinking while still respecting our past. And that, that's what I love about Boston Avenue Methodist is I go to it and I think, who the hell thought this was a good idea? I mean, <laughs> right? it's, it's a masterpiece, but how do you ever pitch that? How, like, you know, that's just such a, it's so fascinating to me. It's one of those structures that looks out of place when you see it alone. Right. But then when you see it in context and you understand where it sits and why it sits and what it is, then it's like, oh, that totally makes sense. Absolutely. And what, what I love about it as well, and you and I did a walk kind of through the cathedral district that was so pleasant, and, and we, we spoke about this, was that it's a masterpiece. But currently, it's kind of isolated. We were talking about the opportunity for infill in Tulsa. The cathedral district, more than anywhere else, I'm sure you noticed, is just full of these surface parking lots Yeah, um, that have been there for quite some time. And, and I envision a future where... You know, obviously Boston Avenue Methodist Church remains, but it is surrounded by a thriving district that highlights it even more, that really puts it in a really cool relationship with its surroundings so that it has even a new kind of feel. And you know what I mean? You know, this is probably a good time to, to venture into this, we've talked about how arch- you know, and it's so interesting. I knew when we were when we were on our our sort of stroll through downtown Tulsa, I was thinking about a later date when you and I would be talking about this, and the whole idea of a city. You know, it, it is a mid sized city. Tulsa is, you know, it's it's four hundred thousand, mm-hmm. and you're you're in a flyover state. You're the second city, you know, in the state. So it kind of leads to much of the information people will get about Tulsa. They don't they don't see the beauty because they've never been there. But when they hear about it, they'll hear about it because there was a Donald Trump rally there, you know, right. on it's originally scheduled for Juneteenth, which for many people, the reason that is so inflammatory is because of the history in Tulsa. Absolutely. And we talk about it. What, here's what's so interesting to me. Tulsa doesn't hide from the history, but instead no. s- strives to rectify it. And, and that's the feeling that I got. When we sort of toured, one of the first places we went was to Black Wall Street to, ta- mm-hmm. to talk about what happened and to talk about why it happened, but how people, later generations, are really trying to address it and, and trying to make steps towards rectifying it in, in whatever sense that means. D- tell me in your words, because I think you can explain it far better than I could just from a tour one day, sort of what, what, the, what Black Wall Street means to Tulsa forever and sort of what's, oh. what's been done over the course of time and what's sort of the, the plan for the future or the idea for the future. Absolutely. So again, kind of the, the quick 
abridged and probably all too short history um, would be that uh, obviously Tulsa, like essentially all of America, uh, although Tulsa, Oklahoma was not at all a state at the time of the Civil War, Tulsa was a heavily segregated community. It remains segregated, although not by law, uh, to, to this day. But certainly in its early days was, was heavily, heavily segregated. Uh, and the north side of town was the black part of town, and the south side was the predominantly white part of town. Um, the north side of town in Tulsa uh, developed its own commerce and economy because it was excluded uh, from, from the predominant economy of Tulsa. And in Tulsa, did it more successfully than just about anywhere else. So successfully, in fact, that when uh, Booker T. Washington came to visit uh, Tulsa, uh, he proclaimed that the Greenwood District, which was the hub of, of black commerce in North Tulsa, he proclaimed that it was the Black Wall Street uh, of America um, because it was so incredibly successful and wealthy in spite of the many, many hurdles and challenges uh, that would have been put in the way of any black entrepreneur or individual uh, at the time. And Black Wall Street was this incredibly prosperous district full of every kind of you know, grocery stores, pharmacies, butchers. Uh, there was a plane service, an individual who had his own planes that he would fly people around in. There was uh, multiple movie theaters. I mean, there was anything you could think of uh, in a city at the time that they had on, on Greenwood, it was all destroyed uh, in 1921 um, as a result of a race massacre. Essentially, uh, an event occurred, uh, uh, which we now know to this day was likely a lie, a misunderstanding between a young black boy and a young white woman uh, who actually we think to this day might might have actually been dating. Uh, the young black boy was apprehended. He was seen as accosting her. Uh, a group of black individuals went to city hall because they were afraid that he would be lynched uh, and a gunfight ensued and Tulsa basically burned uh, the entirety of Greenwood. No buildings were left standing. But the interesting thing about black wall street is that it did rebuild actually bigger and better in the years following the massacre. And that's the part of the story that even if, I mean, for far too long, the, the massacre itself was covered up. But even to this day, lots of people, as they're learning about the massacre, are unfortunately not learning the most inspirational part of Greenwood, which is that it is not defined by a tragedy that occurred to it. It is defined by how it responded uh, to that and rebuilt bigger and better than ever. What eventually did the Greenwood district in, as it did in much of urban America, was kind of the urban renewal policies, the white flight. Uh, of the 80s and 90s, where lots of downtowns throughout the country just bottomed out. Uh, and that's what, what eventually did in did in Greenwood. Uh, but although it is rebuilding again today, and that's kind of the fascinating thing where, where it links into Tulsa's story. And you mentioned with, with Donald Trump coming and other events like that. Greenwood has been fighting for the ability to control its narrative, to tell its story as it happened. Not just the tragic parts, but the hopeful parts, the successful parts, the inspirational parts. Tulsa is fighting to do the same. You know, we are, as you said, uh, a smaller city in a oft-forgotten state. And oftentimes the narrative is, is thrust on us. You know, the nation only wants to turn its eye to Oklahoma 
when a tragedy strikes or something silly or absurd happens. Um, and we are fighting kind of tooth and nail, and I think slowly winning the battle uh, to change that narrative, to get control of our narrative, to share what Tulsa truly is. Um, but it certainly makes it harder when national events outside our control are, are, are thrust upon us. Yeah, yeah, right? So the the land where where Black Wall Street stood has 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 been vacant for for much qu- of it yes for quite some time but there but mm-hmm. tell me about the district and what's planned certainly so much of the land that was traditionally black wall street had been vacant after a highway system cut through that area uh, in the 80s it um it essentially decayed uh, the land was then gathered up through purchase or eminent domain by the city with various plans for various projects all of which never came to fruition um and essentially, it's been squatted on for years now. But uh, the city of Tulsa really has had this awakening in the past 10 years or so, recognizing that we need to look our history in the face, and then we need to move forward to reconcile with it. And in that spirit, the city of Tulsa is basically making all that land available for development, uh, obviously with a preference towards uh, developers of color to come in, reown that land, build affordable housing, things that the community needs uh, throughout that district. Um, And so there's a lot of effort towards that. There's also effort currently right now we're constructing uh, Greenwood Rising, which is a memorial and legacy center and museum uh, to the Greenwood district. Um, And that should be finished before the hundred year centennial of the, of the race massacre uh, next May. That's I, I can't I can't wait to see that. Um, I think that's it's really interesting. And again, you know, I I bring it up, you know, for history's sake, you know, and and for people who want to get really deep in the history of it, there there's a number of places to go to really understand the history of it. But I think what what's interesting to me is sort of how a city addresses the the past, right? And it's that one foot one foot in the past. And, and one foot in the future. And speaking of the past too, just sort of, you know, to sort of move into the downtown area again, as you walk through downtown, there is this thoughtful process of districts and ideas for what those districts actually mean. You, you have an arts district. And as we were walking, you know, we were, we were walking through town and, and it's, you walk through Guthrie Green and I'll let you explain what that is, which is just the coolest place. And then you look over to the left and there's a, oh, there's a double A, baseball game taking place yeah. in the in the middle of downtown as you walk towards the the blue dome district again where it's like arts and culture and society have all been really planned out and again what, what not again but one of the things that really struck me was the lack of traffic and i and i understand that a lot of that has to do with the current pandemic, but a lot of it doesn't, right? I would say most of it doesn't. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Mostly not, the, the, traffic is not an experience uh, that we have in Tulsa <laughs> in any sense, like they do in larger cities. No, that's, that's fascinating to me. So the, the arts district is relatively new and then you've got Guthrie green. You've got, you've got the baseball park. These are all, relatively new and thoughtful and then you lead into the blue dome district which is which is not new that's sort of the the blue dome as you were explaining to me was was originally a gas station correct 
So, yeah, so it was originally a gas station. All of Tulsa is both new and not new in the sense that certainly downtown, uh, many of the buildings, you know, I believe it's, um, oh, is it, is it Jane Jacobs, the urban planner who said that uh, for new ideas, you need old buildings. Uh, <laughs> Tulsa has so many old buildings, but many of our, our districts had basically just been defunct. They were abandoned old structures like the Blue Dome, which itself was an abandoned old uh, Phillips 66 station that was on Route 66. Um, and these districts have been reimagined really in the last 15 years. And that's the earliest. Most of it's happened in the last decade um, that we have rebuilt and reimagined what each of these can look like. And I really always wish when I tour people around Tulsa that I could have a time machine because, <laughs> you know, it's not like many other cities where I feel like if I go back 10 years, it will look different, but it won't look fundamentally different. Downtown Tulsa is fundamentally different in every way uh, from how it was 10, 15 years ago. And, and it's all for the best, I think. Uh, but yeah, all these districts have really come alive and, and have so much more room to grow. Totally. And it's, it's so funny because, you know, we're, we're at, we're at the time now and and I've only you know it's funny we've been talking for you know close to 50 minutes and I'm still about halfway through my list of things <laughs> that I wanted to ask him about just because you know there are other things like the Tulsa Club like the U oh, yeah. Union Depot um the Mayo the you know what the one thing I am going to ask you about is Union Depot just because this is one of those examples of a structure that is so fascinating to me, and again, I'm going to put it, I'm going to put an image on on our Instagram so you can see it. But it was something that you know, Grant, it could have so easily just been torn down because of where it is and what sure. and what it is. But it wasn't. Instead, it was reimagined as as a, a jazz club. Yeah, the Oklahoma Jazz Hall of Fame is in the uh, the Union Depot. Uh, our old train station, which is just a, a gorgeous Art Deco train station. I mean, the, the exterior of it is a really a, a beautiful structure. And uh, it absolutely could have been um, torn down. It was not, uh, obviously. And it it's all the better for it. I mean, I love that building. And I'm so curious to see kind of, you know, it's reached the point now where it will never be torn down, obviously. And so it's so interesting to see how it develops and grows. The Jazz Hall of Fame is taking up the majority of it, but there's actually room even for other parts of it to kind of be reimagined and, and uh, redeveloped a little bit. And so it's really exciting. That's a really cool little lot. It's also just right behind City Hall, uh, the massive glass ice cube building. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it's one of those things where Tulsa really is a, a, a tale of, of two time zones, you know, the, the old and the new, and, and they've just been mashed together, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it was forced. It feels like it was thoughtful. I'm glad it feels that way. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> it, it was, a lot of it was incredibly thoughtful. Obviously with all things in a large, in a larger city, you know, we, we some of it that appears planned was kind of thrown together, but much of it has been planned in the last 10 years or so. And that's because we've had this incredible opportunity to learn from other cities that have kind of grown and developed, learn from their mistakes, and to really think, hey, wait a minute, we have a really cool opportunity in Tulsa. We have kind of half of a blank slate. Half of our downtown is literally a blank slate. It is empty parking. 
And the other half is kind of these historic, interesting buildings, many of which themselves needed to be reimagined, were vacant. Uh, and so we kind of had this blank slate to look at and say, well, wait a minute, what do we want Tulsa to be? Uh, because downtown Tulsa, certainly, it wasn't anything at that point. It had a history, but it didn't seem to have a future. Uh, and so it's through that planning process that we've really been able to, as citizens, craft a more interesting, more fun, more inclusive, more vibrant Tulsa. And and it's interesting, too, the last thing I will say about this is, well, it, it is clear your disdain for parking lots. <laughs> were, were, were it were it not for the parking lots, you wouldn't have some of the amazing opportunities that you that you currently have for development in a in a downtown urban setting. Oh, absolutely. If I if I were a person interested in urban development, uh, Tulsa would be at the top of my list in cities I'm intrigued by because it's one of the cities where you can actually, with the least amount of uh, of effort, meaning you wouldn't have to tear down a bunch of stuff. You could totally redesign a lot of the city. And those parking lots do provide an immense opportunity. They also provide an immense responsibility because as those get developed, we as Tulsans need to make sure that we get it right because it's a lot more expensive to, to get it right the second time. Yeah. And I mean, listen, if, if it wasn't a parking lot, let's say it was a park, you'd never be able to tear it down. You'd never be able to right. build on top of it. But a parking lot, you know, I guess it's it's seeing the positive and everything. Grant, this was so great. Thank you for the time. Thank you, Josh. Thank you so much for coming to Tulsa. Uh, that's the first step, you know, coming to coming to visit. And uh, I really can't wait to uh, to see you and hopefully any of your of your listeners who are intrigued enough to, to check us out uh, to see you all in Tulsa. Ted Reeds is an architect and adjunct professor of architecture at the Christopher C. Gibbs School of Architecture at the University of Oklahoma. Ted is president of his eponymous firm and one of those amazing storytellers you are instantly happy with whom you found yourself connected. I've often shared my opinion that architecture is a language while design is the storytelling of, of, of design and architecture. Ted is the rare architect that has mastered the storytelling within that language of architecture, which is probably why he was so much fun for me to speak with. Ted and I spoke by phone and discussed some of the amazing structures in and around Tulsa, Oklahoma. You know, I, I mentioned the first time that, that we spoke that I recently had a chance to visit Tulsa and absolutely mm -hmm. fell in love with the city. Oh, that's great. And I had a guide in, in Grant, who we, you know as well, mm -hmm. and he took me on a walking tour of the city. And being a fan of design and architecture, I was, I was absolutely stunned at how much amazing design was, was crammed into such a small space. <laughs> Indeed. You know, you tell the story very well. Uh, about how, how Tulsa started. So basically, you know, Tulsa was this sleepy little Oklahoma town before it was Oklahoma. Tulsa was a sleepy town. Uh, it didn't even have the main railroad stop. Uh, Sepulpa was in the running for Santa Fe's uh, main depot, if you will, uh, in the early 1900s. But when the Glenpool struck uh, in, and I, my dates, in the early 1900s, 
prior to statehood, somewhere between 1903 and 1905. It was really in Oklahoma and in the area, the largest uh, discovery of oil in the history of our country. It made anything that had been discovered in Pennsylvania look like pudding. Um, Additionally, there were other fields discovered up around Bartlesville uh, to the north later. You came here to make your fortune. I wrote a uh, poem a while back on the 100th anniversary of the founding of our city, and I think it was 94. We were founded in 1894, right after we were renamed Tulsa from Tulsi Town. And uh, it was called uh, My Arabia. And essentially, Tulsa was uh, what Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Iraq, Oman, the Emirate Republics, uh, all became later instant overnight wealth. And so what they set up was they set up a grid of streets that was named just like New York City. And that that street naming was named in uh, 1912, five, five years after statehood. They brought in water from the Spavanaugh Project. Uh, Spavanaugh is to our, our east and a little bit to the north, and it brought in enough water uh, to support a city of, of 500,000 when the city's population was only 80,000. They took train trips to the Northeast and to Chicago and to New York City uh, and promoted our city and promoted it not just as a place to come and make a buck, but a place to come and live and, and celebrate life. And so out of this discovery of oil, was also a wonderful coming together of Western culture as we know it in every strongest aspect with a value in the arts. I mean, Caruso did his last uh, operatic performance in Tulsa uh, in 1921 or 23, I forget the exact date, at what we used to call the Tulsa Municipal Theater, uh, built uh, in 1918. He caught a, a cold here and he died on the train on the way back uh, to New York City. Quite, quite sad. Uh, we have a world-class ballet and we've had that for a number of years. We've had a great symphony orchestra. It's, it's struggled uh, in the last decade, but it's making a, a slow comeback. Most of the buildings that you saw, which are at the heart of downtown, uh, which uh, Grant took you to, are from the 20s and 30s, maybe some in the late teens. He may have shown you some of the mid-century modern wonders that we have as well. Essentially, they built a city to last because they were proud of it. They they didn't just want to put up whatever the cheapest building was to represent themselves, but they wanted to share uh, their idea of a city with others. And so they hired some really good architects. And those architects, uh, as you may well know, I mean, they range from Winkler, George Winkler, who's not related to the Fonz. On my tours that when I first gave them, we used to begin at the Mayo Lobby, and he did the Mayo Hotel, George Winkler did. Um, And it's modeled on the plaza in New York City, by the way, because the Mayo brothers would go up there and do business, both for their oil businesses and their furniture, which they sold for almost 70 years in the city, uh, to to Bruce Graham, who did the wonderful Warren Petroleum Building, uh, which 
lent its hand as a precursor to the PepsiCo building on Park Avenue in New York City. Um, Across the spectrum, we've had some great architects. Residentially, of course, Frank Lloyd Wright uh, did West Hope uh, for his first cousin, Jenkins Lloyd-Jones, who owned the uh, Tulsa Tribune newspaper, which was our evening newspaper. Long gone, unfortunately. It was a great paper. Um, So it wasn't just their thought, but they went out and spent the money on the right guys, you know, to build the buildings and to do it right. Uh, Josh Cosden, uh, with his Cosden building and later with the addition by HTB, he hired Hoyt out of St. Louis, who had done some of the first what we call skyscrapers nowadays, right, in St. Louis and Chicago. Wonderful building uh, out of terracotta. It used to have what we referred to as a crown top. Uh, when they when they built the addition next door, they hung a cantilever out over it that goes up 19 floors above it, or 21 floors above it, and they removed the crown top but replicated it pretty well in their remodel. Are, are you talking about the Sinclair building? No, the Sinclair building is on the Main Street Plaza there at the intersection of 5th and uh, Main. It's on the southeast corner. And Harry Sinclair, uh, of course, was part of our story, Dino the Dinosaur, which we all know and love. And that brand is making a comeback, by the way. I don't know who bought them, but I'm glad to see Dino making a comeback. Right. I always thought he was kind of cute. Uh, I can remember going to Dino stations and getting a little dinosaur as a kid, you know, when, when they filled up, filled you up with gas. But Harry was a character. My God. He was just as important in building Tulsa. And, and a lot of it had to do, quite frankly, through the fact that he saved the Exchange National Bank. Uh, he and a couple other oilmen. In 1910, the Exchange National Bank was about to go under. Uh, and they pooled 400 grand together and saved it uh, from a run on it, if you will, uh, took it over and eventually moved it across the street and built what later became the National Bank of Tulsa, or now known as just 320 South Boston, which is a magnificent uh, Beaux-Arts building. The 320 building is is one of the yeah. first ones that we visited. And that, yeah. was, that was formerly the first National Bank of Tulsa. And... One of the things that I, I think is really cool about this is as many times as it's been sort of remodeled and freshened up, that vault is still there. That vault door is is still there. It almost feels like they built a whole building around the vault door. Well, there is a story there. So when I give tours of it, and by the way, it was Oscar Winteroff and Edwin Weary uh, for Will, Weary and Albert out of Chicago were the architects. Three phases, 17, 23, and 28. When the the large molar safe, which weighs 32 tons, the door alone weighs, I believe, 20 tons by itself and can be opened because it's so well balanced with two fingers and closed with two fingers. Uh, the gal who takes care of it now, uh, when I give little kids a tour during the day, she always shows off and tells them about the vault. And so I, I ask you a question as a layman. Uh, what do you think was built? First, the vault or the building? I'm going to say the vault. You are correct. Yeah. You get an A today. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so the vault, the vault replaced a much smaller molar safe as well, which was about one one hundredth the size. Um, 
But as you can imagine, in the 20s, everything was handled in cash. I mean, there was no there was no Bitcoin. There was no electronic transfer of funds. None of this happened. And so Tulsa was replete with a lot of cash. And so when they built this, they did put the vault in first, and they had a tunnel which started on the north side of the building underneath 3rd Street. 3rd Street was originally a raised platform street, if you will, that worked down through the railroad tracks uh, to the north, uh, to the Frisco uh, Railroad tracks and, and Santa Fe Railroad tracks uh, to the north. We, we say in our tunnel tours it was Tulsa's first tunnel, and it was built to put down a couple rails and slide this in underneath the building, all the different parts of it, right? Underneath the building to its new location and then assembled. And then the building went on top of it. Uh, you know, the, the structure, the frame, everything went on top of it. Uh, they And so I like to tell people that when you stand in front of that safe, you're standing on two tracks that are buried down there. Now, I don't know if that's a Tulsa myth or not, uh, <laughs> but... Uh, I do know that they did not have cranes that could lift that heavy an object at the time. In fact, there there were so many new buildings going on when they were building, particularly that final part, uh, that uh, they had to wait for another building to be completed before they got a crane to use. And they got into a fight with the Mayo Hotel, which was being built at the same time. And the mail said, screw it. And they just bought their own crane. So, so and, and that's that's amazing. You know, here's the thing. There are all these stories around this city. And it, it, it's like every building there has a story. It's the, the tunnel. The tunnel's interesting. But the tunnel system that's under the city of Tulsa had a, a different purpose. It wasn't just to bring in, you know, parts for, for building materials. Oh, no. What were the tunnels for? Originally, the one that connected... Uh, the National Bank of Tulsa Mega Vault. Uh, it had a tunnel under Boston Avenue to the east, which connected up and into a secure parking garage where the Brinks truck would park and either unload and bring in a deposit or come back in the afternoon and take out transactions and drive to wherever they needed to drive. So it was for security. And likewise, the fill tower originally had one to the first National Bank of Tulsa, uh, which was just across the street to the west of it, uh, for the same purposes. You know, deposits and transactions in the evening being hauled off to where all points and, and wherever they needed to go. I heard a story about the tunnels, that the tunnels were actually created you know, before before delivery of the cash, but also so that the oil barons uh, wouldn't get kidnapped while they were taking their cash back and forth from bank to bank. That is absolutely true for the one that connects the fill tower to the fillcade and the fill tower to First National Bank. That is exactly what that was for. Wait, Phillips, of course, this was during, this is in the late 20s. And it, it's, I, I call them the, the baby snatcher era for a, a lack of a horrible term, um, and the worst case is the Lindbergh baby, mm. which was kidnapped during this time, held for ransom. They paid the ransom and later discovered, of course, it deceased in the trunk of a car. Horrible story. Well, during this time, because Tulsa had all the money, Pretty Boy Floyd, among others, they, they were they were getting calls or letters in the mail. Hey, we're going to kidnap your five-year-old, or we're going to kidnap your wife, or we're going to kidnap you. You better send us four hundred grand. 
And by and large, they, they you know, a lot of times they paid them. Uh, but Wade just got tired of it. And he was living out, in, which was at that time the middle of nowhere in South Tulsa in the Villa Philbrook, uh, which he had built in the mid-20s. He did have his own security detail out there, but, you know, he was living on like 30 acres. And, you know, you, you just, you can't keep track of things very well and uh, in, in, in during that time. Um, so he moved. He, he donated that to the city of Tulsa eventually, now become the Philbrook Art Museum. Really nice museum, by the way, if you didn't get a chance to see it. It's got some wonderful works in it. And he moved to the top of the second building he built in Tulsa, which is known as the Phil Cade. He moved on top uh, to a four-bedroom penthouse. And so he'd have breakfast in the morning. He'd go down to the basement, cross over uh, the street, to the Phil Tower and go up to his office uh, on the top floor and never have to see the light of day. Now, eventually, that went away when when Hoover finally got control of these things, and it didn't it didn't hurt that that prohibition also ended in uh, 1934 as well. So you're right; it was built for protection, and then ultimately they were used because we have such extreme weather in Tulsa; it's it's nuts. Now, the summers, you know, we may have temperatures that get 110. I've been in Tulsa when it's been 118. I don't like it then. But these tunnels offered a connection between buildings that stayed, okay, so when it's 100 above, maybe they're 80. You know, it's almost like a wine cup, if you will, because they're so well insulated by the earth, and they're reasonably deep. Also, in the winters, uh, they had uh, radiant heat. And so they would stay reasonably warm in the winters from our severe winters, which we often have as well. So they became practical. What I would like to see and what I've discussed with Grant's dad, Chris, and, and he's actually brought, Chris has brought this up to me, is develop them to where they have life again. At one point, the tunnel uh, connecting uh, National Bank of Tulsa with the Kennedy Building to the east and the Mid-Continent Building to that, uh, to the south, they had little shops and barber shops down in there. And now the only thing left, there's a barber shop down in the basement uh, of the Mid-Continent Building. But at one point, there were little dress shops down there and right off, you know, underneath the buildings, right off of the connecting uh, corridors. And I'd like to see that come alive again. You're talking about Wade Phillips. And we're talking about the tunnels. But I think to back up a little bit, you you have called wade phillips the father of modern of uh, modern tulsa right oh absolutely and you've got yeah. you've got the phil tower and you've got the you've got the philcade now the philcade was interesting because it had 14 stores and shops at the bottom levels and and it was it seems to me like it was kind of the beginning of mixed use in, yeah. in in tulsa and in addition to that i kind of wanted you to also elaborate on the manner in which they designed this you know you've you've got the 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 classic vertical lines of this of this art deco architecture you've got you've got dramatic shadows right and you've got this you've got all this gold it's a it's a it's a perfect example of what was happening at the time in comparison to what was happening and what what were you know considered way more popular cities like like New York or Chicago. Absolutely. That, that you, you really bring up a great point in that, yes, they wanted to, you know, as I, as I, as I began, they wanted to reflect the culture of where they came from. So they wanted to, to build something that people would be proud of. But they were also pretty cool in, how they, in, how, in who they hired. And they wanted 
cutting-edge architecture. And at that time, Deco was also called, it wasn't called Deco yet. That didn't happen until the late 50s, early 60s, but they called it modern. And so that's what they built. They were a bit fearless as well. They took a chance on this new style of architecture. Uh, and that's why we have such a, a wonderful inventory of that style. You know, it, 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 it is remarkable that the Philcade, while it's not the first, if you will, mixed-use building, uh, the Atlas building was built in a, I'll just call it a Beaux-Arts style, just up the street from it uh, in uh, 1918. And it, too, had a arcade in it, uh, but it only had like eight stores in it. This had 14 uh, it truly was more integrated uh, with the street the arcade was because it had two entries. Uh, and then it had offices not for Wade Phillips' company, but for independent oilmen from all over. So it, it held a, a, a mixed use of companies. Uh, and it wasn't just all oil people office there. And then on top, he lived. But what, what, a, what an incredible expression of what we refer to as zigzag art deco which was really the first phase of Art Deco. Uh, and it, it, you know, I, when I take lo- a little kids, or actually adults, I always, on the exterior, I, I have them stop on the, on the corner of the building and look up and say, you see anything that you don't normally see in architecture up there? And I point out to them the squirrels, the snakes, the interlocking, in, in, the, in the columns, the interlocking asks, that are kissing at the top. And then the wonderful birds that are reflected on top of the second floor finial on the windows that are just remarkable. They, they, are, they, are, they are quintessential of the 30s. They're almost like out of a movie set uh, from Hollywood uh, in the late 20s, uh, early 30s. They are so crisp. And what I like about that building and what I like about most of the Art Deco buildings, also the, the Tulsa Club across the street, and well, basically Patty Corner to the Phil Tower, is they change. They're, they, they're, they're, they're not a whole lot of depth to their detail, but they rely on light to tell their story. And depending on the time of day, uh, particularly uh, in the mornings with the Tulsa Club, um, it, it just comes alive. It, 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 those are only three quarter inch steps on the main exterior columns on the, but they look so vertical. The building looks 30 stories tall, even though it's only 11. It's just magnificent. And then in the afternoon, as it changes and it, and it begins to hit the face and the whole corner of the Philcade building, the Philcade building just lights on fire. It, it's just beautiful. How it, and then it changes as the sun goes down, the shadows change, and the building changes. So they, they, they really express themselves just through the use of natural light getting there. That was one of the things, too, though, Ted, it, it, that's so interesting about, about this particular style of architecture and specifically how it was arranged and the use of space in downtown Tulsa because of the materials that they used you talk about it lighting on fire and I think that that's a great example because of of the inset on the materials because of the the reflective materials but also in addition to the use of materials to to give it this essence there's that there's that deeper 
purpose behind it. You talk about the the creatures and the animals and the and the life and the nature, and it even goes so far as to you know inside the building when you look up, there's something to see all the time. There's the there's this 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 cornucopia which if you if you see the meaning behind it you kind of understand what they were thinking as they were designing it mhm that, that that is true and yeah oh boy that is so true a lot of it has to do with the nature of the materials art deco has other than with a well not not in Tulsa but in most art deco they rely on terracotta terracotta is a man made material and in Latin, and I'm, I'm sure you remember this, it means burnt earth. Um, I'm sure you got an A in Latin. But uh, <laughs> but at, at any rate, what, what it allowed the designer to do and is to put whatever color, texture, sheen, what, what he, he could, it, it presented him a malleable material that was also durable to work with. And it could be set up as a three-inch deep piece that was part of a composition, uh, like on the warehouse market down the street, where you have some incredible images. Uh, you have on the left the man, uh, you know, working a railroad. There's an oil derrick. You know, he's looking like a tough guy. He does have a shirt on, but he may as well not. He looks like a <laughs> Superman. And then on the right. You have these fields of plenty in the cornucopia, all out of wonderful terracotta and a female, you know, starting to the harvest, right? The gatherer. So you have the hunter, gatherer, the male, female, whatever. And that th- those symbols are throughout uh, Art Deco, uh, both sexes, if you will, uh, expressed in both zigzag, PWA, and later streamlined. There, there's that wonderful dichotomy between uh, the sexes that's quite frankly expressed uh, in Art Deco that, that, I, that I think makes it a unique uh, style of architecture. And, I, and as we know, it, was, it, wasn't, even, it wasn't even considered real architecture uh, because the modernists, the, you know, the, the Corbusier, uh, uh, Mies van der Rohe, you know, they, they panned it. It's, no, it's not a rejection of history. It's just a reinterpretation in a pretty way of history, uh, which was contrary to modernist principles. I, I, I couldn't disagree more. I, I do think it is its own unique style. And uh, it has certainly stood the test of time. Well, and here's what's so interesting about that, too. I, I totally agree with you, and I understand exactly where you're coming from. You know, architecture is a language. And it's it's the it's this whole tower of babel idea you know where you've you've got these remarkable architects in and of them you know their own work and what they do but they're speaking different languages and and you know for for one architect to pan uh, another style because they don't understand or simply because it doesn't it doesn't fit their taste i think is is interesting and i think it's also what makes it fun to talk about that being said um i want to take you from the heart of downtown to this other example of to what you were talking about, talking about things being set on fire and, and just the, the manner in which they look, the, to walk a short distance over to the Cathedral District, one of five downtown districts, you have multiple churches, and, and the, the, the crown jewel, really, is the Boston Avenue Methodist Church. And yes. you want to talk about 
every element and detail taken down to the to the light fixtures in the parking lot everything was was thought through in this structure it's just it's just amazing and in addition to to that i also want want you to talk about sort of when it comes to city planning you have this structure that is amazing but it it looks like somebody picked it up from downtown from the heart of downtown and moved it because there's nothing else around it it's all part of city planning, but how did that all come together? You, you, you know from walking downtown that we have a lot of missing teeth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're also as well known now uh, for our surface parking downtown, uh, which is not something to be proud of. Uh, but at one time, particularly when that was built in the late 20s, uh, all the other sites around it were full. Uh, you know, between two and five-story buildings Tulsa was populated with. It had a plethora of uh, multifamily housing, apartment buildings with commercial at the ground floor. Uh, it had car dealerships. Of course, it had gas stations uh, because we had oil. It had diners. It, it had department stores. It had cafeterias, uh, which were really quite remarkable buildings unto themselves that are unfortunately gone. But... Uh, and, and frankly, that's one of the reasons why we founded the Tulsa Foundation for Architecture is uh, they were getting ready. Home Depot had bought the warehouse market, uh, which I call the, uh, the entry to downtown from 11th Street uh, with its wonderful uh, uh, Art Deco tower. Uh, and they were going to tear it down, and we said no. And so between the AIA and Preservation Tulsa, uh, we got together and formed a new group because we didn't think they were doing enough to keep the, the, the historical buildings. Uh, and since that time, uh, we have kept probably 20 buildings that are of historic note from being torn down. Uh, and they have taken advantage of tax credits and found a new life with a new use. But to answer your question of why there, well, it was a site uh, that they could afford. They were moving from a downtown site, the Boston Avenue United Methodist Church. So, you know, it was a site they could afford. What is interesting about that site, it is located where the Jeffersonian grid, which is the true north-south grid which Jefferson set up with Lewis and Clark, with the Louisiana Purchase. By the way, Jefferson, as we know, was not just a politician. He was an architect. He wasn't a civil engineer. He was an architect. Uh, and he set up that north-south grid that we've used for the remainder of, of, our, of our growth as a country. The rest of the downtown was set up perpendicular to the Frisco Railroad track. Uh, and as such, it's about 14 degrees off true north. So quite by accident, that church has to resolve both a true north-south grid and the odd grid that is about 14 degrees off of true north-south. The way Bruce Goff solved that was by putting a curved nave, a, a circular nave on that corner. And what that allows is the streets may not line up at 90 degrees, but it provides a wonderful volumetric transition between city and town, if you will. And it's just freaking brilliant. Um, that building uh, was brought to Rush Endicott and Rush 
uh, by Ada Robinson. And I, did you take a tour of it and, and get their story? Okay. The door was locked, so we didn't get inside. We walked the perimeter, and, and Grant and okay. I were talking. But it's really interesting because you mentioned Bruce Goff. And by the way, one of the things that I absolutely love is Goff has a a significant connection to Southern California. Um, Goff built the Al Struckis house in LA. Yep. One of one of the oddest and most wonderful buildings you you can look at. I love that it's still there. It was fin- it was yep. built in eighty four. Very strange. Um, but he he also built the Japanese art pavilion for LACMA, which again yep. is is another amazing land. It's a it's a significant piece of architecture in in Southern California, in LA. But what's interesting is there is there is controversy over over the the Boston Avenue Methodist Church and who designed it. Well, th- there is, and it's unfortunate because the controversy rests with the brethren of the church only. Uh, they are adamant in giving credit for the design uh, of the architecture to Ada Robinson and the rest of the entire architectural uh, world and art world gives full credit to golf. The truth lies somewhere in between. You know, I grew up in Tulsa, and so I grew up around this, and I, I had no idea who Ada Robinson was. My dad uh, studied architecture at both Yale, and then after the war here at OU, under golf, and uh, he always, he never even brought up Ada Robinson. You know, he just said, you know, that's one of Goff's best work. It's, my dad did not, uh, was not a proponent of Goff's later work, um, but he loved his earlier work, particularly in Tulsa. Uh, but uh, the truth lies somewhere in between, and, and I, in, in my opinion, she deserves a hell of a lot of credit, first of all, for taking a chance and bringing the building committee of which she led uh, to uh, essentially a young man who was, as he was born in 1904, they began development of this in 24, so he's 22, 23 years old. They'd already tried a more conservative, typical uh church architect out of Fort Worth. They didn't like any of his schemes. They were kind of awkward, forced, gothic revival. They didn't fit the site. You know, obviously the site was a difficult site to solve. So she she had the gut, and she talked him into hiring costs, and she, uh, specifically with this firm to be the designer of it. Long story short, and, and I'll send you a, a letter of notes that I uh, that my, my friends and I took we spent a lot of time with Bruce in his last years, and, and he had good days and bad. Uh, but one time, actually the first time he had been back to Oklahoma uh, was when we drove down to Tyler, Texas, picked him up and brought him back to the university to speak to our uh, Paul Sigma Delta, our honorary society here in the architecture school. And he was just elated to be back on campus. And later they rehired him and let him teach his final year and a half of his life here. Oh, that's uh, great. Yeah, it was great. But essentially what he told us was, you know, they had a few preliminary sketches and designs that they liked. And he said, do you want me to go with you to present these? And Ada said, no, no, Bruce, I'll do this. They'll think you're too young. And you do realize he was also gay as well. And so that, that, that wouldn't have been good. But to her credit, she as a woman in the 20s, which is quite remarkable, had sold this radical idea of a tower, a 14-story tower with a curved nave. 
to a very conservative group. Long story short, they 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 went into working drawing, and he said, "You sure you don't want me to go and present this latest iteration that was now fine tuned and drawn more?" He goes, "Oh no, no, you don't need to." And so she came back in about a week with it, with uh, one of the main contributors, Mrs. Cole. Her husband was one of the main contributors to the to building fund, and she said. She doesn't like this line on the side of the of the tower, and she thinks it looks too tall. And Bruce goes, well, what do you mean? That line there is a dimension line, just showing you graphically all the buildings. But this is a working drawing, ma'am. This is what they're going to build it to. No, no, she doesn't. And so Mrs. Cole speaks up and says, uh, well, Ada doesn't like this because it doesn't really reflect the intent of her design. And so that was the first time. This was about mm. the fourth meeting, and Bruce goes, what? No, ma'am, this isn't her design. This is my design. She's helping me present this to you. And Ada goes, we'll, we'll, we'll figure this out later. And Bruce goes, wait a minute. No, you got to tell her this is not. And and Mrs. Cole, the lady she brought with her, goes, well, Bobby, Bobby's been presenting these designs for Four months now, and we really like the work she's done. So don't you dare call yourself the architect of this. Oh my God, this is, we have this all written down, and and I'll send you it. I'll send you an email with it. But uh, long story short, uh, he went to his bosses at Rush Endicott and Rush, and they said, "Oh no, this isn't right." And they can say what they want, but you are the designer, and we are the engineer of record, and you are the architect. They built the building. And the first article that came out recognized Bruce Goff as the designer of the building in the Tulsa World and the Tulsa Tribune. Within a matter of hours, allegedly, uh, the head of the church called the Tulsa World and said, we need to change that story. Ada Robinson designed this building, and uh, they did in the next issue. And that is the beginning of the controversy. And there really isn't much controversy. She did help with a lot of the iconography. The, the praying hands, you know, the, the way the hands work on, on top of all the finials, uh, those were her ideas. Uh, she did bring some detail to it, uh, but she also, and this is in the letter, and it's just, it's just so, so sad. She also had stripped some original ornament from the building because uh, she, didn't, she didn't understand what it was going to look like, and she didn't like it. And then had her own stuff, which delayed construction of it, put in its place, which this building would have been electric if it had stuck with even more of its original detail. What you see is a little bit of her uh, makeup applied to it. It was much more abstract and much more uh, powerful uh, as a religious piece than her remake of many of the pieces on the exterior. But she deserves she deserves the credit for selling this idea, but she does not deserve credit to be the architect. What fun would it be if there wasn't a little controversy and a, oh, a, and a story behind the story architect? Behind <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it gives the building a story. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. And you know, I mean, I I love Roger Coffey, who's who's a, a descendant of the essentially the founders of, of Boston Avenue, uh, the Cole family. And he, and he said, what am I going to do? Call my grandparents liars? You know, I mean, he's, his, his hands are tied. You know, those are the stories he, he heard his whole life. Well, uh, let's, but, uh, let's also, you know what? I want to back up a little bit. Um, 
because as we talk about stories, Tulsa, there is no shortage of stories in and around the city of Tulsa, which I think are, are, are fascinating. I want to back up a little bit because you and I had a great conversation about this. I got a tour. I got to talk to Grant about this as well. The idea behind Black Wall Street and what that, yeah. me- what that means to, to the city of Tulsa. And what's really interesting is there, you know, recently the, the Donald Trump rally at the, at the BOK Center brought a lot of attention to, to Tulsa. And a lot of the conversation was all of a sudden about, about the, the massacre at, uh, at Black, Black Wall Street and what it meant. But you didn't get both sides of the story. You got pretty much the headlines for drama's sake, but you didn't get what it meant to the city, what it did to the city, the damage it caused, and then how how the city, with, with these philanthropic roots, has has been working to sort of come come back from that and, and do good at the same time. And that is manifested and represented in much of the architecture in and around the city. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yes, uh, May 31st, 1921, was our worst hour as a city uh, with the Tulsa massacre, which was until about a year and a half ago known as the Tulsa race riot, uh, which means, you know, someone, both sides had to be fighting, which it wasn't. It was clearly a massacre. Uh, And we actually had to go through the National Trust. Uh, and uh, through our Preservation Commission, of which I serve, to rename it the Tulsa Race Massacre, and it is formally done and in the federal books now as the massacre, which is a good thing. So think about this, Josh. So 1921, Tulsa's already booming. Uh, we still haven't built most of our... Uh, we haven't built all, almost all of our Art Deco jewels and really the heart of the city yet. We're still... Uh, we're raising, we're trying to get people to move here with our Spavanaugh project, which was in the late teens, early 20s. And this race massacre occurs. Ten years later, on May 12th, 1931, opens the PWA Tulsa Union Depot, uh, right along the Frisco Railroad tracks in a wonderful PWA style. But this is only 10 years after the race massacre. It has two entries. It is a Jim Crow Frisco Railroad Station. It has since been, and, and this is where I use this building to kind of explain where we've been and where we are going to go. It has since be, been remodeled. They, in the 80s, they took off the Jim Crow interests of Cincinnati to the east and created one entry. It has since become the Oklahoma Jazz Hall of Fame. It has one entry. It represents African-American culture in its, in its love of jazz. Jazz also has been influenced by Western Europeans, uh, but not as much. Um, and so I, I look to that building and what we've done with it and what we are using it for as a place to to join together in a, in a common purpose in that all of us uh, belong in Tulsa and all of us can participate in these buildings to give them one soul and not two. And that in itself 
represents where we are headed. Yes, Black Wall Street was a remarkable thing. I mean, it started way before uh, statehood uh, in the late 18, in the mid 1890s, and it went right up until uh, May 31st, uh, 1921. It was a wealthy uh, black uh, area unto itself, but yet connected to Tulsa economically. Those guys worked in the oil fields. Those guys, they had their own. You know, they, 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 they connected, but yet they did not uh, because of, of uh, the Jim Crow laws at that time, which, which were quite sad, uh, to say the least. Um, what I liked most about our reaction to the Trump gathering as a city was, first of all, our demonstrators wore masks. And they were peaceful. They treated the attendees with as much respect as they could. Even the boogie boys or whoever those guys wear the Hawaiian shirts and carry AK-47s who were right across, uh, right next to the demonstrators standing on a corner. Uh, I had a friend who went down and demonstrated. and He said people were going up to him and saying, you guys aren't scaring us. We have open carry in Oklahoma. But, <laughs> so why don't you guys just leave? You're not you're not scaring anybody. And so they eventually left. They just left. They realized that no one was afraid of them, and 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 they had no place there anyway with, with what those guys stand for. But we only filled a third of the BOK. Uh, sadly, people got sick. Herman Cain, the worst uh, victim of it. It's really a sad story. Uh, but we persevered, and we will persevere. Uh, we just had mayoral elections. Uh, G.T. Blank, Blank, Bynum was just uh, nominated for a second term. He, he won it with over 50% of the vote. But he gets it. He gets that we have to rebuild this city to its former glory, except with everybody involved, not just the white people. And we are doing that. Uh, the BOK is a symbol of that. The ballpark's a symbol of that. Um, we are getting ready to heavily invest in North Tulsa uh, in development as well uh, through both the Tulsa Development Authority, uh, through foundations like the Kaiser Foundation, um, and through... Uh, through other private foundations uh, in the Greenwood District, and uh, it's going to work. Let me ask you this, because I think that this is probably the the best place to take it. You talk about the Greenwood District. The the Greenwood District is is where Black Wall Street was, and yes. and what represents you know uh, traditionally. Aside from that, it became a poorer part of part of town and and a neglected part of town. But I wanted to ask you specifically, you mentioned um, the ballpark, which is downtown. You've got Guthrie Green, which is an amazing public space. You've got the Gathering Place, which is a simply amazing public space. It, it feels like Tulsa, and what, when I look at a city, and I look at a city that is going in the right direction, because cities are living, breathing things, right? You have one. Yeah. You have the ones that have have a a reverence and a um and a and a passion to protect their history, both good and bad. But they've also got one eye 
keenly focused on the future. And I think with all of these developments that, that have really promoted the five districts in in Tulsa and you've got you've got a a, a reimagined look at the mother road and you've got everything that's happening in the city right now it seems like there is a concerted effort to breathe new life into this city and to bring new people in and to to build community and you don't you don't see that often in 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 cities anywhere in the world let alone here in the states, as fractured as we are right now, how does that happen, yeah. and what's the future? Yeah, that, that is that's absolutely true, and, and essentially what we're doing is we're going back to the ways we were at the uh, turn of the last century. Is in that we got a good place to live, we have a culture here, we've got nice people. Move here, make a living, raise your family, uh, enjoy the arts, enjoy a baseball game, enjoy a soccer match, uh, and come here. And and to George Kaiser's credit, who is privately leading a lot of these uh, exercises in bringing new people here, uh, he gets it. He, he gets that Tulsa uh, needs to be diverse. He gets that Tulsa needs to be a place uh, for for everyone, um, and so that going forward, uh, we don't. We don't, we don't worry about where you live or what you own, but everyone is treated the same and everyone has the same chance to rise. Greenwood can rise, uh, along with the rest of Tulsa. And finally, Greenwood needs to rise first, uh, among all of the districts in our Tulsa. If we bring Greenwood, Greenwood back, which we will, it will rise again. Uh, it will benefit the entire city and the entire area. So, what is the what is the future of Tulsa? You know, it's it's at this four hundred thousand population mark. It could go one of yeah. one of two ways. You could continue to grow, it could, or it could it could stay it could stay the same. Is Tulsa meant to be a bigger city than it is? Well. That, 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 that's a really good question, and you haven't thrown me for a loop, but I've often thought of this. I lived in New York City for 10 years in the 80s, and of course, New York is a, is a true city. It's, it's the world city. I had grown up in Tulsa, and so, I mean, I saw a lot of similarities in the, in the physical presence of the buildings to the street downtown and the buildings to the street in Manhattan, et cetera, et cetera. But we're at, like, I think 410 right now. Uh, the problem with Tulsa is still, if it wants to grow, and, and I would like to see it grow, I, 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 not much more. I think I think we could handle probably three-quarters of a million, quite frankly, because there's a lot of infill that can be developed in our city, particularly in downtown. But we need, we need several things. We need a proper mass transit system. Uh, we need better schools, uh, which we're working on. Uh, and we need a wider diversity of industry and we're, we're working on getting this, but it's, you know, my brother-in-law is a, was a, had a big recruitment company for Tulsa and mainly he recruited engineers for the oil and gas industry or geologists. And he said it was hard as hell to get them here. But once they got here and they walked around the city, they didn't want to leave. That's the key. How do you get them here? With the uh, influencers program that George 
uh, is doing, which I'm assume is one of the reasons why you came here, uh, offering just a small stipend uh, if you do move here and work remotely. Uh, I really think that's brought some some good energy. This is the second year they're doing it. I, I, I gave most of those tours the first year. And I looked into the eyes of these people. Most of them are from New York or Los Angeles like you. Probably 90% of them are from New York and Los Angeles. And their eyes were like half dollars when I would walk them around the city or I would even talk about the city. Now, there were the few that wanted to know culturally who built these buildings. Did the blacks participate in the building of the 1920s jewels that were walking around and the early 30 jewels that were walking around? And by and large, the answer is no. Um, they worked in the oil fields, um, and they worked in other uh, lower-paying jobs, unless they were within their own district in Black Wall Street, where you know you could make a great living as an attorney or as a banker. They had their own. They had their own uh, superstructure uh, to their their culture. There, you know, they they did need Tulsa to survive. Uh, but they would do just fine without it as well. It's an amazing story, and it's it's a it's a magical city. You know, we we talked about that before, and I really I listen, I, Ted. I really appreciate the time. At some point, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to do this again because oh, I only okay. I only got to about half of the things I wanted to talk to you about today. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. No, we, please, as I say, I can talk until the, the cows come home. So. This has been great. I, I really appreciate the the journey and the lesson. And, and at some point, I want to come back to you, because maybe next time we can talk about the mid-century modern well, be, uh, yeah, effect in, of, of Tulsa. What we built in the 20s and 30s by these men and women who moved here from established cities, mainly in the East and the, and the Midwest, we built, they, they built a legacy, and that legacy has continued to this day to where when Kaiser builds the gathering place, he wants to build the best damn park in the world. When we build an arena, we go to Cesar Pelli, and we build a world-class BOK arena. We're still doing it. If you build something in Tulsa, you better be aware of its history. And you better respect it, because if you don't, you're going to be laughed at. And that's why I really look forward to continuing this on to mid-century, because you'll see that we have a plethora of wonderful mid-century modern uh, structures that that'll, it'll blow your mind. I love it. Ted, thanks for the time. Have a good day. I appreciate it. You too. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Grant. Uh, for both the tour and the chat, I cannot wait to get back to Tulsa. For images from my walking tour with Grant, check out the uh, Convo by Design web- website and Instagram. You will also find links to the George Kaiser Foundation and see what they do. And check out the gathering place. Uh, all links in uh, in the show notes here. Thank you, Walker Zanger, for your continued support of Convo by Design. And thank you for listening to the show. Without you, again, really, what's the point? Please make sure to subscribe so you get every episode the moment they're published. And until next week, be well and keep creating.